I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's great to raise capital. Valuations are great. But those are running shoes for the marathon. You've not won the marathon. You're listening to Crazy Smart Asia, a podcast exploring the unexpected stories of Asia's disruptors. I'm your host, Tamara Lemunier. Most entrepreneurs would give anything to have their company reach near unicorn status. But according to Zilingo co-founder Ankiti Bose, be careful what you wish for. Her take, that the tag can be both a blessing and a curse, is typical of Ankiti's style throughout her interview with Gentis Lee Williamson straight shooting, and refreshingly, courageously honest. It's a style, it seems, honed through years of setbacks, successes, and the grit and determination required to get to where she is today. Deciding to start her own business only a couple of years out of college, Ankiti was often confused as her own company's assistant. Undeterred, she built Zilingo, an e-commerce platform to help small merchants sell online. Realizing the company was in an already crowded space, she then pivoted the business. She transformed Zilingo into a B2B platform that uses technology to make the global apparel supply chain digitized and more efficient, enabling those same small merchants to benefit from newfound cost efficiencies. Today, the company's annual sales volume exceeds 1 billion US dollars. Not that that made Ankiti's next challenge any easier to deal with. In a no-holds-barred conversation, she also talks about the challenges the business faced in the early days of the pandemic and the hard decisions they had to make to restructure and weather the crisis. The pair also discussed the need for entrepreneurs to be pathologically optimistic, the importance of mental resilience, and why we need to destigmatize talking about mental health as entrepreneurs. Here's our conversation. And Kitty Bose, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on Crazy Smart Asia. Thank you so much for having me, Lee. Um, so I thought before we get going to kind of lighten things up, to kind of get us in the in the right frame of mind, we might do a quick fire round, if you're game, of course. Absolutely, yes. Okay. All right. We're going to do about 12 questions, quick fire round, uh, first thing that comes into your head. Okay. And Kitty, what's non-negotiable for you in business or life? Uh, trust and loyalty. Explain what you do in one sentence. We make the fashion supply chain fair, transparent and sustainable. What's your most visited website or app after your own? Instagram. What's your biggest guilty pleasure? Is it also Instagram? <laughs> I think it's Netflix. Okay. What was the last book you read? Um, the last book I read was Simon Sinek, uh, The Infinite Game. And what book has had the biggest impact on your life? Uh, the book that had the biggest impact on my life. I have to say as a child, the Harry Potter series. Nice. Uh, what would be your last meal on death row? Uh, <laughs> a big, juicy McDonald's <laughs> burger. Mc- McDonald's? <laughs> yeah. Okay. There's so many better, so many better burgers out there. <laughs> I know. <laughs> 
but uh, I'm craving that, I guess, right now. The, the heart wants what it wants. Um, how would your best friend describe you? Uh, optimistic, fun, loyal. And how would your worst enemies describe you? Oh, uh, resilient, hard to kill. <laughs> That's exactly how you want to be described by them, huh? Um, what's your most treasured possession? Um, I think it's a, a watch that my dad gifted me when I turned 18. What was the first job you ever had? Uh, first job I ever had um, was... Um, the first serious job I ever had was at McKinsey right out of college. Um, but the first job I ever had was probably middle school when we all had to collect household items, make things out of it, like crafts out of it and sell it, and then donate mm -hmm. the money. Did you make anything good? Uh, <laughs> I think the jury's out, but I was pretty uh, craftsy in, in school. So it wasn't bad. Uh, what's the secret to success? I think the secret to success is, is resilience and not giving up and having the ability to deal with failure. And what's the worst advice you've ever received? Uh, the worst advice I've ever received <laughs> is uh, that uh, the world is very meritocratic and uh, your gender, race, etc. doesn't matter. Just work hard and you'll get there. I think that's a lie. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, so there's so much to unpack in that final answer, I think. And I think we can get into unpacking some of that in, in some of the the time we have together. First off, um, I want to get to maybe the nub or the why. You mentioned Simon Sinek like, earlier. Let's talk about the why. Um, you told me in uh, a, a time we've talked before um, that in the early days, uh, you and everyone else at Zilingo, you didn't talk about profit, but impact. Um, why is that and what difference do you think it made on the way that you operated and, and the way that you grew? Um, I think, you know, the reason to think about uh, a problem that you're solving or the impact that your solution has is a much more long-term way of changing the world. And, and the only way you can consistently, you know, you brought up the point of profitability or making money. Yeah. If you, the only way you can do that consistently is if you're permanently solving a problem or set of problems, and there's a permanent shift and, you know, it's not temporary in nature. And, uh, and for that long-term impact or impact really moving the needle in whatever you're doing is actually much more important than thinking about short-term profitability or how you might make a quick buck. Mm. Uh, and I think we see that these days in especially in tech in company after company after company because you know there was an era where tech was a sector but right now every sector has tech and the shifts are permanent and these are the way the, these are the ways in which we're thinking about every industry and it's it's changing in a permanent fashion and there's this like long-term impact and of course a lot of value is being created as a result of that mm. so i think it's important to not lose sight of that now, actually i think that any other approach could lead to massive failure. Right. And you kind of practice what you preach, especially in the early days, in that you didn't seek a short-term profit. Uh, you actually pivoted pretty quickly when you realized there were longer-term opportunities you know, further down the road if you made some difficult decisions early. So you started out as an e-commerce site, right? And you developed into a platform that then offers B2B services to merchants who operate uh, physical stores. So tell us about that transition uh, why did you make it and how did you go about doing that? And what impact, to use your word, what impact did that have ultimately on your business? You know, I think um, uh, for us, uh, and we always admit it, right? We wanted to solve a problem for merchants. Um, and that problem was that as the world digitizes more and more, 
as the big behemoths come into the world of e-commerce, everything digitizes, there's technology everywhere. How do old school, old economies, brands and SMEs, how do they keep up, right? And to keep up, they would need to digitize. I think everybody appreciates that and understands that. Yeah. the set of tools or the mechanism to do so was not entirely clear. It was like, you know, there was a point where everybody was saying, okay, everything needs to be in the cloud, but how do you do that, right? Everything needs to have digitization in the way that we manage inventory. Everything needs to have access to fintech uh, or, or, you know, so-and-so blockchain in the contracts, et cetera. But these buzz, buzzwords are flying around, but how do, how do you actually help a merchant who's on the ground in Asia building a brand and, you know, adapt this technology. So that was always our mission that helped these merchants digitize. And we started to do that by helping them uh, with tools that would help them sell online to the consumer. Mm. But very quickly, we actually realized that some really large B2C, horizontal B2C companies were actually doing that really well for fashion. So let's say Lee.com is, is, is your shop. Everybody else with a lot of capital, with a lot of engineering, with a lot of product, were spending everything that they could to help you connect to me as a consumer, right? Mm -hmm. So you and I could actually trade quite easily, assuming I wanted to buy a shirt from you. What was not solved, you know, as we spent time with more of these merchants, was that how would you access suppliers and factories and how would they access raw material suppliers and how would all of this production work? And, you know, there were too many middlemen and customs agents. They were leaking away value from the value chain. So why should, you know, and the question was, if there is so much technology and if there is as much data as we say there is, and if we are all as cool as we think we are, then why are there people that are, you know, these old school agents that are taking, leaking away value from the value chain and you and me and the manufacturer, all of us that are actually adding value are making less money. Mm. So we realized that, you know, the problem that had to be solved uh, towards digitizing these merchants was a slightly different one than what we thought. So we made a very brave decision to pivot. And this was after, you know, we had raised a bunch of capital and we had a clear story. But we said, look, if you want to become a sustainable long-term business that is profitable in the long term, is solving a real problem, then we've got to make these brave decisions and, you know, take a few brickbats along the way. And and as you know, I've taken many, but I, Mm. I really stand by those decisions. The second season of Crazy Smart Asia is sponsored by BNP Paribas Wealth Management. We live in a dynamic and ever-changing world where innovation leads the way, a world facing unprecedented challenges. We need to change the way we create and consume to fuel the next wave of change and build a brighter, more sustainable tomorrow. BNP Paribas Wealth Management is proud to support Crazy Smart Asia on its mission to tell the stories of inspiring leaders who are doing just I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah. 
That plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. It's, it's a big, you know, cliche in the startup world, but like most cliches is a cliche because it's a truism as well. You, uh, you need to be solving a problem and you identify a problem that no one else was solving, which I think is cr- crucial. And then because you were the only game in town solving that problem that a lot of people had a hunger for, you grew very, very quickly. And now uh, almost every mention of Zilingo in the press comes with this near unicorn tag. Is this tag a blessing or a curse or a bit of both? Um, I definitely think it's a bit of both. Um, I, I won't, uh, you know, I, I won't be so um, naive as to say that it's only a curse or only a blessing because the reality is that um, a lot of trade doors, a lot of doors into old economy brands, etc., open up with the kind of validation that the press has given us, which we are very, very grateful for. Mm. But at the same time, sometimes, you know, uh, we're a young team. We've had um, successes and massive failures and massive successes at a very young age, relative, you know, relative to a lot of companies, age of the company, age of the leadership yeah. and so on. So um, uh, the the important thing is, you know, to not let this go to your head and go to our head in that sense, you know, and not, not become full of ourselves not take the valuation and the capital uh, too seriously to think that somehow we uh, deserve all of the accolades that we're getting. We still very much have to earn it, right? So so I always tell, uh, you know, our team and even, you know, younger founders that it's great to raise capital. Valuations are great. Private market valuations are great. But those are running shoes for the marathon. You've not won the marathon. So as long as that distinction is clear, and, you know, we can use it in a right, constructive, effective manner. It's all right. But other than that, it can be a huge curse if it's misused or misunderstood. Mm, I love that running shoes analogy. That's why I'm going to steal that. That's great. That's really, really good. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about gender, both on your personal entrepreneurial journey and also then how that's manifested in the way that you've built your business and, and the culture within your company as well. So you said to me before that in meetings in the early days, most people thought that you were the assistant, right? Like, how did you overcome frustrations like that early days before Ankiti Bowes was a brand? Uh, so this happened a lot, right? And uh, it, 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 I'll be honest, it used to bother me in the beginning quite a bit. I have gone home and been really upset about it. I remember calling my mother in India saying, listen, why does this happen? And, mm. you know, she's like, you're a 23 year old girl <laughs> what do you think <laughs> is going on but uh i think uh you know uh, um th- there would there are two ways in which these sort of incidents shape you right one is of course it can negatively reinforce one and there's nothing wrong with that i, I mean uh i'm not blaming any woman in this situation right because it can be pretty tough to deal with uh but i used to go back and tell myself that if i want to fight every single battle and if i want to win every single argument where a man thinks a certain way or um, it, it gets comfortable by somehow putting me down, then I will not, I mean, my mental bandwidth will be so occupied in fi- fighting those small battles that the longer big picture of the war will be forgotten. And it'll be much, much easier to change the world if I actually get to any degree of success, right? And that's like 
uh, everybody has their form of activism. That is my form of activism. I feel like, you know, when there are enough and more women in leadership positions, CEOs and tech and investing, more women investing in funds that invest in women and so on and so forth, things will automatically change because essentially the the room or the demographic which is holding all of the power today if the mix and the you know the 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 way it looks changes you know in terms of gender in terms of diversity in terms of race and so on and so forth automatically some of these things will shift um not to say that we should not call out wrong things when they happen to us we should mm. but if we let it completely occupy us mentally rather than sort of you know take a longer view of let's create successful women and that will automatically shift things uh, i think that's a more effective way but it requires an incredible amount of patience and dealing with an incredible number of uh, you know men and sometimes women who are are not ready to change their mindset or or sometimes they don't even realize it because their misogyny is so so deeply internalized mm. that they don't know that what they're doing is wrong and you also put your money where your mouth is there right you have the schemes in your company out to back up uh you know this type of activism as you say so today i believe more than 60 percent of the merchants that zilingo helps are women you also have a program called Women's Circles. Um, can you tell us a little bit uh, about that and, and how you help create opportunities for, for women in Asia? Honestly, I, I feel like we can do more. Uh, we want to do more than we are doing. Um, but I think the least that we can do is get the conversation started. Uh, the key thing about working with women-owned businesses or businesses co-owned by women is that uh, you actually see some of the challenges that they face and, you know, raising capital in their businesses and getting the right kind of guidance. And that actually gives me a lot of perspective on uh, how to move think about, uh, you know, the financial products that we have or the sourcing products that we have in a way that is uh, uh, effective for both genders. And 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 we, we see it time and again that men and women actually make decisions slightly differently, but women are consistently able to deliver great financial outcomes. They're very responsible. They're very, very responsible with money and with, uh, you know, guidance of their business and so on and so forth. So that's on the sort of on the merchant side where we love working with more women. But of course, we want to do more. We want to support them with more skill-based schemes, more expansion schemes around financing and so on and so forth. We've, you know, on and off always tried to do more on that front. And we want to continue to do that. I think internally inside the company as well, um, what we have done is I think we've at least started the conversation of how do you create more women leaders? How do you coach them differently from men? Um, I, I hear a lot of views on this, but I believe very strongly in this one that the way you mentor women and the way you mentor men has to be different. I have seen time and again working with a lot of young women that they are saddled with a lot of expectations that men are not saddled with, uh, which is not such, their fault. Such as what? Uh, so, I've, I, you know, just is statistically true that most women between the ages of 28 and 35, who, which is the time where, you know, they are most focused and flourishing at work as well, but you, many times are also saddled with expectations of be, becoming a mom or, uh, you know, duties as a wife and so on and so mm. forth. And uh, of course, there are some cultural aspects to this, but I think broadly this applies in most cultures. Yeah. And I am personally and guiding the team also to do this more, to be more and more supportive 
of, uh, you know, women who want to be mothers and be super effective at work. I don't see why it can't be done. We just had the Bumble CEO ring her, uh, you know, NASDAQ listing bell with a baby on one arm. So that's where the world is. I don't see why, um, you know, it has to be a sacrifice at all. So there's a lot of societal nurturing here that we've got to deal with. And um, and, and I, I really want to unpack this a little bit more. And of course, that'll only happen as more and more women uh, in, in our team get married and ha- become young moms and so on and so forth. Uh, right. We're actually dealing with one such situation right now. And I, I mean, um, I'll, I'll let you know how it goes, but I'm trying to be, uh, you know, an effective coach to a colleague uh, through this journey. Um, but, but I think starting this conversation is extremely important. Uh, our COO, Adi, who's obviously, you know, a man, is actually a great example of how a male leader can, you know, once they are cognizant, most men are actually like feminists now, right? Like most mm-hmm. men are very open-minded, but he makes it a point to coach men and women differently, to make sure that he understands these challenges and, uh, you know, is cognizant of them and creates those paths for success for these women. Um, and, and you know, I try to emulate that as well. And uh, a lot of these things are experiments, right? Because, you know, very few of our companies yeah. that are new young tech companies are trying this kind of stuff. But it's really important. Otherwise, we'll just lose out on tapping into this amazing talent pool, uh, which will be a real shame. Right. It's a good business decision as well as just the right social decision to make as well. I want to talk to you a little bit about um, your personal leadership journey, or at least the very, very early days of that. A lot of listeners to Crazy Smart Asia are entrepreneurs themselves or very, very early stage. Um, or maybe there's some people who are uh, in professional careers, but they want to uh, go out on their own. And that was your case, right? You had a high-flying career. You are working at McKinsey and in Sequoia before deciding to branch out alone. So that decision must have taken a lot of guts. Can you tell us a bit more about your decision-making process back then? How did your parents react? Like, what was going through your mind when you decided to make that plunge? So, Lee, two words, foolish courage. (laughs) (laughs) I think if I had overanalyzed and analyzed and made a framework to, you know, look at the situation in a logical way, uh, it would not have worked out because it just required this leap of faith. And uh, just this um, deep desire, like burning desire to do this uh, and to do something and to do something with a crazy bunch of dreamers in markets that we hadn't even all been to, uh, you know, where people were speaking languages we didn't understand, eating food we had never eaten. But this burning desire to see an opportunity and build something for it. I think if I didn't scratch that itch at that point, maybe I would have regretted it for the rest of my life. Uh, mm. So so I'm glad I did it. Mm. But I think there's a lot of foolish courage. There's a lot of serendipity in some of this stuff. Um, you know, despite having a relatively analytical background, I think, I think I was guided by sheer passion at that point of time. And had I not been guided by sheer passion, I don't think I would have taken the plunge because, you know, some girl from India goes and starts building out this company in Southeast Asia and South Asia and is doing some crazy things in Bangkok and Jakarta. It makes no sense. Uh, I'm glad it worked out. Right. Um, I want to talk about the pandemic, of course, uh, because over a year ago, all the things we're talking about, leadership and sacrifice and, and all these different things, everything took on a whole different hue. And a lot of other things also would went completely went out the window. Um, what lessons have you learned as an entrepreneur from the pandemic? Uh, what's changed? What remains the same? 
and, and what shifts will continue to happen um, post-pandemic? I think the biggest thing that the pandemic has brought us is, and it, it, it obviously um, it's a terrible thing because people lost their lives, right? But mm. the silver lining in all of this is that um, you know science and technology is at a at a at a stage today where uh, you know things happen at amazing speed with very great quality. So, so I think the role of technology really sh- uh, stood out last year. Now. Mm. For for all businesses and definitely for us, um, what uh, it was is, of course, it was an adversity, but as much as an adversity, it was also an opportunity, right? Which is that all the businesses, especially the old school, uh, you know, SMEs and brands, some even large companies that were shying away from full digitization because they were like, okay, this is something that will happen over the next 10 years or so, yeah. realized that. Actually, there was no other way but to fully lean into digitization, run your business from your, uh, you know, bedroom or study at home where your products are getting sampled virtually. They're ending up in a warehouse that is operated by a B2C e-commerce player. Everything is going on smoothly on tracking with factories. Goods are getting shipped across countries. They're clearing customs, logistics providers. Everything is happening without any physical intervention from any of these business owners, Mm. all because of data and technology and because of supply chain partners like us, e-commerce companies, logistics partners, and payment companies, of course, making everything super seamless. And of course, financial institutions providing the capital to do so. But I think it became very apparent very quickly, like, you know, I think in a three to six month timeline, you know, the, the, I would say the early part of 2020, that this was an this was an irreversible, irrevocable, permanent shift in the way that this generation will, you know, interact with technology. Mm. The great catalyzer, right? Trends that were going to take three to five years took three to five months at the beginning of 2020. And and as you touched upon at the very, very beginning, um, it's presented opportunities. It's presented um, some exciting developments. But, but first and foremost, it's obviously had a lot of negative implications. People have lost their lives. A lot of people have been furloughed or lost their jobs. Now, you've had to make a lot of difficult decisions at the beginning of the pandemic as well, including laying off a number of people. Um, from reports, it seems like you went to great lengths to do this with as much emotional intelligence and empathy as you could. Um, how did you accomplish that? And how do you go about doing something like that? I imagine you must have lent on that resilience we were talking about an awful lot. Uh, absolutely. And I think, you know, uh, we did this uh with a lot of inexperience in the sense that, you know, we had never seen uh, such a shocking uh, black swan event as I think most people alive today have have not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we had the added complexity, we and every other company that had to do this in this this pandemic was, you know, we were having these conversations over Zoom calls. And how insensitive is that? I have put myself in the shoes of the person that was at the receiving end of our message. And I said, you know, the world is in the middle of a pandemic. You're worried about your livelihood. You're worried about your family. And these kind of tough messages, whether it's about pay cuts or it's about, you know, the Un, uh, uh, unfortunate uh, restructuring or any of that, those messages are not even being delivered in person, right? So it was tough. I think uh, we uh, started doing it. We got a lot of feedback. We made mistakes. We took that feedback. We tried to do it better from the feedback that we got the next, like towards the latter half of the process, we realized that we had we had started to fix things. Uh, we had started to improve things. I think um, just 
prioritizing that empathy, understanding that a, a lot of people are just dealing with so much, right? Because, you know, multiple people in the same family lost their jobs. And, you know, there were so many healthcare issues. People were worried about insurance. People were worried about so many things. So, so um, doing it empathetically uh, it was obviously the most important thing. I wouldn't say we got it 100% right. Uh, but- what did you get right? And what, did you, what would you do better next time? I hope there's no next time, but... um, Sorry, yeah, bad choice of words. But uh, what would you have done differently? What would I have done differently? So I think uh, what we got right was perhaps, uh, uh, you know, we did one-on-one conversations with every single person and we tried um, at least to the best of our abilities to uh, find other opportunities for them that that would work for them. Um, What we would have done better, I think, is just, uh, just one big thing, right? If it was possible... And I hope like whenever the situation arises in any company, not just ours, is that some kind of physical interaction is actually, uh, uh, you know, possible. And, and, and in, in, for example, in some of our countries where the re- restrictions were starting to get lifted, we tried to do that. And it did have a much, much better, I would say, impact, right? So, for example, in Singapore, one-on-one meetings were still possible in, in some, you know, through some of the latter phases of the pandemic. But in a lot of countries, there was complete lockdown at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a huge, I think the human element cannot be stressed enough in, in these tough times. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, having said that, having said that, I do want to, I do want to stand up for everybody that, stayed and brought the company not just out into recovery but like i mean we are performing very well on a lot of metrics now compared to before or during the pandemic because the team actually prioritized the silver lining and the opportunities in the pandemic and said you know merchants need this merchants need that they need virtual sampling they need this they need that they went out and brought this opportunity right instead of saying that um that you know we're so upset about everything that we don't we don't feel the motivation i think people really fought for the company and for themselves and for me and i'm i'm like ever so grateful for that and the the same goes for merchants we you know a lot of merchants um it was not about us or them they were just not able to deal with covid they had to shut shop especially a lot of small merchants but the ones that survived were the ones that said you know what officeware doesn't work athleisure works right now people Mm. want to go hiking so can you guys help us pivot our business so that we have a shot at thriving um and and you know most of those situations where that agility and that mindset existed, actually things worked out. That's fascinating. It's also a fantastic segue into what I want to spend the rest of our conversation talking about, which is leadership, which is dealing with failure, which is sacrifice and, and resilience. So, you know, your staff finding that silver lining, that's culture, right? That's workplace culture. And more often than not, that comes from the leadership team, that comes from the founding team. So how do you react to no I've only imagined you've come across it enough times in your career. How do you react to no? How do you deal with that? Uh, I think, uh, you know, you hear no a lot as an entrepreneur. In fact, you know, if you think about all the pitches you make, um, you know, not just to partners and vendors and, you know, investors and shareholders, it's internally to the team. I Mm. would say it's like 90% 
uh, you know, you hear no, or you hear uh, yes, and then you try it and then you fail. And then it's only the 10% that's, that works out and, you know, people end up glorifying it. So I think, uh, I think the most important thing about hearing no is to understand that it's like, and to not take it personally, right? And, uh, you know, sometimes you can have a string of no's and a string of failures and still, you know, come out all on top and, and, and everything looks better at the end of it. Um, so I think that's the most important thing that, you know, you, you learn from it. Every, every, every failure is a lesson. Every no is a lesson. Every Mm. success and every yes actually doesn't teach you anything. It just takes you to the next level of difficulty on this game of life we're all playing. Right. So I think it's important to keep that mindset. And this is such a Silicon Valley mindset, right? The importance of failure to success. But in, you know, on this side of the world, in Asia, we don't glamorize failure in, in, in the same way. Do you think that is to the detriment of Asian innovation? I think, uh, you know, both cultures are very different. Uh, but personally, if you ask me, and we, I think we're moving in that direction. If we want to, uh, you know, incentivize more um, innovation and more success and more interesting ideas, we have to get used to the idea of iterating, right? Which inherently means uh, we go out there with something and it's not all 100% win. You take back what didn't work and you keep sort of, you know, iterating in a cyclical way and then you get to something that works. And then after that, beyond that also, you don't sit still. You constantly innovate because the way technology is reshaping every industry in the world is that every single day it's moving ahead. And if we don't learn and grow with it and our products don't learn and grow, then we will become irrelevant and someone will disrupt us. So I think um, it's very important to think about failures as an important and, uh, you know, step towards the iterative process of getting towards eventual success. And that Mm -hmm. success is also not permanent, which means that you have to work every single day to keep innovating and see further failures to experience further success. Um, because you can just sit, you know, rest on laurels of the past and then you're done otherwise. And because the world is changing so fast, it's become very different. Things are very different. So we have to incentivize and really get used to the idea of frequent and fast failures. Right. And, and like you said, you have to kind of extract the stuff that worked, throw away the stuff that didn't and just, just focus on the stuff that worked moving forward. That, um, is incredibly optimistic. You need to be always looking on the bright side. You know, when we first spoke, first time we met, you said the entrepreneur had to be, quote, pathologically optimistic, which was super interesting and a really interesting turn of phrase because it's exactly what Jimmy Wales, founder of Wikipedia, said when I spoke to him for his episode as well. So what does pathological optimism look like to you? Well, I mean, you know, pathological optimism to me is a very practical thing. And I really do practice it on a daily basis. I remember telling you this before and when we first met and um uh, and it doesn't mean having this like false sense of no matter what cheerleading everything and just everything is going to work out. It means, look, here's where we are. It is what it is. Mm-hmm. But we and no matter what has happened in the past and no matter what brought us to this point of extreme failure, extreme success or moderate failure, whatever it is, moderate failure, moderate success. If we want to create the outcome that we want to create from here, then we can right? So you can't control what's happened in the past and the story that's already done, but you can control the story that begins from now and perhaps end at an outcome that you would like, which means that uh, you have to have a very clear path and plan. Uh, And to create that plan, you need to have positivity, right? And I think every founder 
uh, is pathologically optimistic. Otherwise, it's very easy to get bogged down by the everyday failures because we see so much failure on a daily basis, which nobody else sees, right? The, the world doesn't see it. The press doesn't talk about it. Um, you know, we don't talk about the mental health and the trauma around it. But you, yeah. you do face it on a, every single day basis. So you have to have this optimism that, listen, I can figure it out because I can control what happens next. Of course, I, you know, can't control or change the past. Right. And I feel like over the years, the amount of entrepreneurs that, that I've gotten to know and, and interviewed, it seems like at least 50% of the battle is in their own head, is in choosing to take a negative and, and seeing that the silver lining is in taking that failure as a learning rather than as a pushback that means you don't stop trying. So kind of, I guess what I'm asking you is, like, what does it really take of a person uh, to build a successful business? When, yeah, when you say they look like overnight successes, but that's only telling, you know, 10% of, of the story, what price do you have to pay? What, what sacrifices do you have to make and other entrepreneurs to make it happen behind the scenes? I think, you know, um, I think about this in a very simple way that uh, whenever we are passionate about something, incredibly passionate about something, um, we have to sacrifice some other thing. And we're all making our choices every single day that um, help us do what we love the most, mm. right? So, for example, uh, you know, let's keep aside being an entrepreneur for a second. Let's say you want to be an Olympic swimmer or you want to be a tennis player. Or you want to be some kind mm. of an athlete or you want to be some kind of an academic or you want to be something else. You could be a surgeon, right? Um a lot of days, months, years are spent training and perfecting things, and you end up sacrificing a lot. You either end up sacrificing sleep, family, vacations, holidays, your peace of mind, whatever. In in any in anything that requires that level of passion and dedication, that ends up happening. And I think the same is true for entrepreneurship as well. I think the only added nuance is that when you're running a company that you're responsible for other people's lives and livelihoods um and if a business especially if a business touches a lot of business a lot of other businesses a lot of smes mm. a lot of you know sellers or riders or whatever it is uh yeah. restaurants then the sense of responsibility that you feel is extremely high Right. Um, and, uh, you know, any SME aggregation platform, no matter how big or small, I'm sure the founder is not just thinking about themselves, but they're also taking the added pressure of look, so many people, businesses, employees, um, merchants, everybody's livelihood depends on my ability to be my 100 percent best when I show up in the morning. So I don't have the choice to not show up because I'm not just responsible for myself. And mm. that can be, uh, you know, a good and a bad thing from a mindset and um, sort of mental resilience point of view. And, uh, and, and it's really important, I think, to deal with it the right way to not right. feel overburdened or, you know, overwhelmed. We'll be right back with Ankiti Bose. But now let's get the thoughts of Antoine Wong, BNP Paribas Wealth Management's head of Taiwan market. He talks to Lee about the digitization of retail and future e-commerce trends. One of BNP Paribas' investment themes for the second half of 2021 is preparing for the consumption tsunami. What is this and, and how do startups and other sectors linked to consumption stand to benefit? Thanks, Lee. The consumption tsunami is a global call by us. Essentially, economists are saying that households globally have accumulated some 5.4 trillion US dollars in excess savings since the start of the, of the pandemic. 
and some two plus trillion is expected to be spent when the country is open up. And this is looking more and more the case in second half of 2021. Since COVID, many personal and home goods have already enjoyed a boom. This would be joined by domestic tourism, hotels, luxury goods, and clothing as social gatherings return as a bigger part of our lives. Many startups are using technology to disrupt traditional retail during the pandemic. But once COVID is behind us, do you see this shift to e-commerce continuing at the same pace? And what are the opportunities in this space? Well, the shift to e-commerce is a secular trend. So, where COVID lockdown had been a catalyst for its acceleration, especially with respect to "quote unquote" older consumers like myself, and with hard-to-penetrate segments like groceries, these newer form habits are likely to stay relevant and persist. In terms of investment opportunities, we still like the major global e-commerce players, simply as there's still room for growth, and there remains potentials for related services such as. Digital payment, insurance, logistics. In general, digital payment model is highly defensible, with recurring revenues, high incremental margins, low capital expenditures, and high free cash flows. The move to e-commerce is part of a wider trend of digitization, as people increasingly move online for goods and services. Aside from e-commerce, what additional opportunities should investors be looking out for? We also like other megatrends. Like the shift to digital advertising, and the beneficiaries there are search engines and social media, programmatic advertising companies. Those are the guys who optimize everything and place your ads in the right places at the right time, and related software providers. Also, at the moment, with elevated tech consumption, certainly the semiconductor makers. And now back to the show. Right. I mean, Harvard Business School reported that、uh, an estimated 49% of entrepreneurs will suffer at least one mental health condition in their life, and they also, you know, and and it's important, obviously, not just for the founder, but also for the sake of the business as well. They also went on to report that 65% of startup failures can be attributed to personal stress、uh, experienced by the founders. So it's important for the success of your business as well as obviously for your own health. And you know we glamorize being busy, and we glamorize shouldering responsibility for dozens or, or, or you know thousands in some cases employees. What does that do to our mental health and for other entrepreneurs? What would your advice be to kind of building a, a robust mental as well as physical health?、Um, you know, I, I think I think the real number, if people were truly being honest, would probably be even higher than the one you said, because、wow. I think I think、uh, you know our baseline for. What is a mental health issue? What makes our mental health worse? It's actually very high, right? It should be lower because people should be able to acknowledge the stress that comes with being a founder,、um, acknowledge the failures that it comes with, and easily seek help, right? Because help is available. You have coaches and mentors and therapists, and you know you can have a buddy system sometimes with other executives or founders. But if you don't lean on a support system, And you take all of this pressure yourself can be extremely overwhelming, and、um, and actually very counterproductive, right? Because more people have good intentions and want to help you than you think.、Uh, so so I I have learned that the hard way, but when I learned it, I really learned it that there are enough and more people and resources out there to help 
me and help you and help everyone get through the tough times, help make decisions in, in a sound way, which helps your team, your executives, the business, the, 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 you know, in our case, the merchants that depend on it. It's really, really important to focus on mental health. And in fact, I think more and more the stigma around it is going away, which is which is fantastic because you shouldn't have any stigma around it because this is an unreal level of stress that you're you're handling as a young entrepreneur. You know, most of our as most of our listeners will be right now, and you should just raise your hand and get help. Um, and and there's absolutely nothing wrong about it. You can reach out to me and I'll maybe guide you to some resources if you have to. Um, but uh, but please don't think that you're alone in this. That's fascinating. So final thought, um, uh, if our listeners take away just one insight from this conversation, um, Ankiti, that will help them build a better world, um, what should it be? Uh, I think value, solve for creating value and not wealth. And wealth will follow. Ankiti Bose, thanks so much. It's been such a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for another episode of Crazy Smart Asia. If you're enjoying the season so far, don't forget to subscribe. And please do leave us a rating and a review while you're there. You can also follow Generation T on Instagram. We're at at Generation T underscore Asia. And check out our website, GenerationT.Asia, for more on the people, businesses, and ideas shaping Asia's future. Next week, Lee will be talking to Jason Ma, co-founder of music label 88 Rising, about hip-hop, the power of cool, and what MC Hammer taught him about Silicon Valley. Until then, try to remember two words, foolish courage. I'm Tamara Lemunier. See you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.